Uh, the idea I want to start the sermon with today is this statement right here. Prove yourself right. We are taught in our school systems the value of this statement. If you do your homework, if you pass the tests, you prove to your teachers that you know about the subject. And if you prove yourself enough, you get a good grade. Or you prove to yourself that you can't figure it out, so you give up. But this is rooted in us, this idea of wanting to prove ourselves. But it's not just in our school systems. It's all over the place. There are ad campaigns that tell us that we must prove ourselves. And I'm guilty of this, actually. On the back of my office door, I literally have a poster that says, Go one more. Prove yourself right. It's a fitness thing, and it's not about proving yourself to other people, but it's about proving to yourself that you can do what you set out to do. But it's also not just in school and fitness that we try to prove ourselves. It's in any argument you have ever had. Unless you've never had an argument, and in that, like, congratulations, I don't know how you did it. But in every argument you've ever had, you are trying to prove that your point is more important. In fact, in any argument you've ever had, you really don't care about understanding the other person at all. You just want to be understood, which means you're literally just trying to prove that you're right. But at the end of the day, we must come to realize that if this is our mantra, it's exhausting, it's taxing, it's never ending. Because think about it, when you win an argument, you lose the person, which means you then have to prove to that person that you do want to understand them, that you do love them. If you seek in your fitness to prove yourself, once you accomplish your goal and you prove it to yourself, what do you do next? You go, cool, I did this. Now I have to do this because I have to prove it to myself. And then in school, let's say you've proved it to yourself and you did a great job graduating high school or college. You have to prove to yourself that you can get a job. Then at that job, you try to prove yourself and climb up the ladder. You just keep fighting and fighting and fighting to prove yourself over and over and over again. We must come to recognize that we are not meant to live this way. And yet there are some people who believe that this is the mantra of Christians. They believe that Christianity is about proving that we are holier than everyone else, that we're more blessed than everybody else, that we are purer than our neighbors, purer than the people around us. But that is not how the grace of God works. See, the grace of God is a gift that is free. It's not by anything we've done to earn it. Where other religions will teach you that you have to act a certain way, do a certain thing to achieve their version of heaven, Christianity does not say that. Instead, Christianity says that we are saved through the grace of God, not by anything we do, but by everything Jesus did for us. We simply have to repent of our sins and pursue Jesus. 
And that is why today we're going to talk about how God is gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the idea of grace as a free gift and how repentance plays a part in it. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 15. Luke 15. And as you turn your Bibles to Luke 15, I want to take a second to quickly explain what repentance is. See, repentance is a fancy word for humbling oneself acknowledging that you have sinned and that you are going to sin, that you have made mistakes and you're going to make mistakes. It's recognizing that you are not perfect. Repentance is recognizing that we are deeply flawed and that we are in need of the grace and forgiveness of God for our sins, past, present, and future. And we are going to look at some stories today in Luke 15 that have to do with the idea of grace and repentance. But before we jump in, I want to explain a few things about this chapter in the Gospel of Luke. The first thing I want to explain is that there are two themes predominantly throughout this chapter. The first theme is that Jesus is trying to show how the grace that he shows to sinners is actually the grace of God, because God is gracious. And the second theme that we see woven throughout all these stories is how Jesus is inviting people that are skeptical of him, that are criticizing him for hanging out with sinners. He is inviting these people to show the same grace that he shows sinners. He wants these people to recognize that it is sinners and those who are broken that need Jesus. So he invites them into this process. And we see that Jesus uses three parables to do this. And these parables all share common themes, phrases, and storylines, actually. We see that there is a main character that moves from having something to losing something, then to having that thing being restored to them. And once they have that thing restored to them, it is a cause for celebration. And Jesus uses these parables to answer the criticism shown to him in verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles, look look at verses 1 and 2. They say this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this right here is very similar to something that actually happens earlier in the book of Luke. We're in Luke 15, but if you go back a little bit to Luke 5, you see a very similar story to this, where a group of Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples eating with a group of sinners and tax collectors. Now, the Pharisees are the religious people of the day, so if we're honest, they're kind of like us, if we're really honest. And they question Jesus then, and they say this to Jesus and his disciples. They say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds to them with this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to 
repentance. See, the Pharisees couldn't see why Jesus would spend time with people that uh, aren't pure. Why would Jesus spend time with sinners? Why would Jesus spend time with people that the world looks at and says they aren't holy? But Jesus recognized that they is sinners and those who are broken that need healing, that need the grace of God. Sinners like you and me that need to recognize that the grace of God is bigger than we could have ever imagined. And Jesus wants these Pharisees to understand his points on grace, repentance, and the lost. So he launches into three parables. The first, the parable of the lost sheep. The second, the parable of the lost coin. And the third, the parable of the prodigal son. So let's take a look at the very first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 3 continues and says, So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The interesting thing about this parable is Jesus invites his audience to be a character in it. We see right here that he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one, does not go after it? He is inviting his audience to put themselves in the place of the shepherd. He wants them to understand this parable at the core. Because if sheep is your means of living and you lose one, that's going to be a hit. But also as a shepherd, your job is to protect your sheep. So if you lose one, that means people shouldn't trust you because you can't protect the sheep. So Jesus wants these men to understand the importance of the lost, the importance of pursuing after the sheep, and not just pursuing the sheep, but throwing the sheep on their back and carrying that lost sheep to the other sheep to make sure that that sheep is restored. This is a beautiful picture because Jesus is hitting them right away with the fact that as a shepherd, you are meant to care for your sheep. You are meant to throw their burdens on your back and carry them to a place of restoration. And we also see this idea that if anyone had livestock as their means of living, they would celebrate one being recovered. And this is a theme we see woven through all of these parables, this idea of restoration being a cause for celebration. Jesus wants the Pharisees to recognize this. And so by adding them into the story, he wants them to see that when something is lost and it is restored, it is a cause for celebration. But just in case they don't understand it at all, or we don't understand it as well, Jesus then launches into verse 7 to make sure that we can truly understand what he is trying to say. Because verse 7 shows the truth about this parable. 
that this parable is really about a sinner who repents and how it is a cause for joy. And remember, repentance is a fancy word for humbling ourselves and acknowledging that we have sinned and that the grace and forgiveness of God is available for all our sins, past, present, and future. And here we see that Jesus is saying that when we repent, it is a cause for joy. Repentance is not something that is not meant to be celebrated. It is not a negative thing. It is something that we actually should practice daily. Asking God for forgiveness of our sins is a humbling and joyous act, not a condemning act, not an act filled with shame and guilt, but instead one that is meant to be a cause for celebration. And we see this idea continued in the very next parable, the parable of the lost coin. Verse 8 continues and says, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now before you read this and go, ten coins, she loses one. Come on now, not a big deal. Uh, Let me read you a commentary that actually puts into play how important this is. The commentary said this, Her coins likely represented the family savings. Not a great sum, totaling the equivalent of only 10 days' wages. The loss of even one coin would be a catastrophic event. Which is probably why, in this parable, Jesus explains what the woman does to seek after that lost coin. We see that she lights a lamp, that she sweeps the house, that she is seeking diligently After that lost coin. And then when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice and celebrate with her. A beautiful story of seeking after something that was lost. And once again, if we don't get the point of the parable, Jesus being as brilliant as he is, helps sum it up in verse 10. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This parable is another example of what it looks like to express joy and celebration for something that was once lost and is now found, for something that is restored. And notice again (laughs) that when a sinner repents, there is joy as the emotion, not condemnation, not shame, just joy. When repentance is involved, we see how great God's grace really is, as we will see in the final parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And as we enter into this parable, I want to introduce you all to the three characters in this story. 
The first one is the father who is full of grace and compassion. The second is a younger son who was lost and then gets found. And the third is the oldest son who never leaves home but receives a great invitation from his father. And it is interesting to think about this story and really try to figure out who is the main character of this story. And really, it's even better to truly think about who am I in this story? Who do I most likely actually resemble in this story? And so let's take a look at this story. It starts in verses 11 and 12. And they say, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Now, this request might not seem like a big deal, right? But back then, this was an act of shaming the entire family. This was so disrespectful to his father and to his entire family. Basically, this younger son went to his father and said, I want my inheritance, dad. An inheritance that I won't get until you're dead. So you are actually dead to me because I want this money. That's so disrespectful, so dishonoring. But the father shows compassion and grace in this moment. The father gives the son what he asks for. And so let's see what happens next. Verse 13, the story continues. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pig ate, and no one gave him anything. This young man, was given an incredible gift from his father. And he lived recklessly with it. We do the same thing, though. We've all been given incredible gifts from God. The fact that we can breathe and live, and yet sometimes we do exactly what this younger son did. We see that this younger son is Jewish in this story, that the son of a land or a large landowner disgraces his father. It probably didn't take him long to go through all that money, and now he's working with pigs. And if you've ever seen a pig pen before, it is disgusting. Muddy, poop, nasty, rotting food, just disgusting, right? So already, this is a terrible job but in this culture, a Jewish man being around a pig, that was unheard of. This was a low of low. Pigs were unclean. The Jewish culture would have seen this young man as unclean. And there are times in our lives where we feel unclean. 
There are times in our lives where we've been incredible gifts or given incredible gifts and we do squander them. We do make mistakes. We live recklessly. We do all these things and we come to the end of ourselves sometimes and we go, there has to be something that changes. Something has to change. And that's exactly what happens in this story. Look at verse 17. But when he, the younger son, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. The phrase, he came to himself, is a turning point in this story. He sees how his father, full of compassion and grace, loved his servants. And yet that compassion and grace is not something this son has felt since he left his father's house. We see that this son is debating kind of with himself, but also going, okay, what do I have to do to get back in my dad's good graces, right? He sees, I, I need to confess myself. I need to repent. I need to ask my father for forgiveness, but I also need to express the fact that I am unworthy to even be called his son. And we see this plan for him to become a servant of his father. See, this, this son thought that the gracious act from his father was going to be to accept his son as a servant. But he had no idea the gracious act that his father was actually going to do. And so let's continue in the story. It says, but while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on my son. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring a fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is a beautiful picture of what God does for us. When we are lost in our shame, when we are lost in our sin, when we run from him, he runs towards us. And God shows up in a way that we don't think is going to happen. The son had all these plans. I am unworthy. Let me be your servant. And the dad comes running from where he was to come up to an unclean man a man that has disgraced him, dishonored him, and he embraces his son and loves him. God blows away the fact that this son has shamed his father, but the father doesn't care about any of that. 
God doesn't care if we've sinned or shamed him or any of it. God wants to forgive us and love us. See, in this story, it is the younger son returning to the father that the father gets up and runs towards him. Before the son had said anything, before the son said, I'm sorry, before the son said, I have sinned against you, the dad broke a social norm. He got up dishonoring himself and ran towards his son. The dad didn't care about anything except for loving his son. And when we see the confession of the son, the son not feeling worthy, the dad reinstates him into the family. The dad doesn't sit there and go, you lost all my money? You did what with it? How did you sin against me? No, he sees that his lost son was found, that his lost son came back to him. The son that slandered, dishonored, and disgraced the father is now embraced by a father of compassion and love and grace. This is how God responds to sinners. It is not by anything we do. The son did not deserve this act of grace from his father at all. But the father here showers him with love. The son didn't have to prove anything. His father showed him grace and love because he is his child. And this is a beautiful story. The father sees his son, hears this confession, doesn't condemn him at all, doesn't make him feel guilty, doesn't make his son feel like he did any wrong. Instead, the father simply embraces him and says, I will clothe you because you've been dirty. I will take on the shame that should be yours to bear. I will take it on. And I will love you and I will create a place that is far better than you could have ever imagined. God's grace is so beautiful. And the son didn't have to prove a thing because of the grace of his father was so abounding. But that's not the end of the story. See, there's another character in the story. The older brother. And so let's finish this parable. Verse 25 says, now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he, the older brother, heard the music and dancing, and he called one of his servants to him and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back and sound, safe and sound. But he was angry, the older brother was angry and refused to go into the celebration. So his father came out to him and entreated him. But the younger or the older brother answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your commands. Yet never you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. 
it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a beautiful story because just as the father dishonored himself running after the younger son, he once again dishonors himself. Because he was the host of a banquet. You don't leave those back in this culture. By stepping outside of the banquet, pursuing the one, leaving the 99. He dishonors himself to invite his son into a beautiful story of redemption. And I want to give you a real quick hint. We're not the character of the father in this story. (laughs) We're one of the brothers. And often we are the older brother. But the grace and compassion of our father still loves us and the fact that when we were sinners, he died for us. And the fact that he took on shame and our dishonor on the cross so that we can have a new relationship that he invites us into, just like the father in this story is inviting his son into a new relationship with his brother. And the saddest part is we don't get to see how this parable ends. I really wish we did. We only get to sit back and observe the fact that the Father was like God, that he is compassionate and gracious, a God who will run out to meet you no matter what you have done, no matter how much you will dishonor him, no matter how much you have sinned, lied, or slept around. There is a God that sent his son to die for you so that you can experience a grace that is beyond any understanding, an invitation so that we can experience a true relationship with our Father, an invitation so we can experience true relationship with one another without condemning one another. But will we be a people that believes that God's grace leads to celebration and transformation? Because the point of these parables is to ask ourselves, do we believe in the saving power and compassion of the grace of God? Do we see that repentance is an act for celebration? Because it's not by anything we do. We can't prove that we are holy. We can't prove that we have done anything. It is all because of the grace of God that is available to us through repentance and seeking after him. Repentance is not about our works or what we have achieved or about proving ourselves. Instead, it's about admitting that we are flawed humans that the people around us are flawed. We don't need to hold up a scorecard that says we're better than other people. We don't need to look at other people and say, well, they're not holy, I I shouldn't be around them. No, Jesus sat with sinners. Jesus ate with them. Jesus saw that they were the people that he came and died for. People like you and me that are so deeply flawed, but he will never stop running after us. He leaves things and takes on sin so that we can experience grace. The cross has taken your sin. We do not need to remember our sin because grace is a gift that is free. It is a grace that transforms us from the inside out. And this grace is available every single day in every single moment if we are willing to repent and pursue him. He is a God that never stops running after us, that shows up in ways that we can never predict. 
But the one thing that is true is if God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. And we don't need to ask others to prove themselves either. Because God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Lord, I pray that as the worship team comes back up and as we sing these final songs, that we would think about the fact that you are truly a God that is gracious to us, that you are truly a God that dwells with us. You are truly a God that leaves the 99 to run after a broken person. You're a God that shows up in ways that we can never predict, in ways that we think We say, well, if I confess this, God, I know that there's going to be this, this, and this. Maybe you're going to condemn me. Maybe you're going to shame me. But God, you say, no. When my son died on the cross, it was for your sin and shame. There is no scorecard. My grace has washed you clean. Lord, thank you for the fact that your grace has washed us. May we look at one another as people that are washed by your grace. Lord, may we look at one another as people that are one step away from restoration with you. Lord, may we recognize that your grace abounds in ways that we can't predict, in ways that we don't deserve, in ways that we never thought possible. But God, you are gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves. Amen.